Folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 14th, 2014. It's Valentine's Day for you guys. If you're listening at work or on the way home, get something for the lady or you're going to wish you did. It's also Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, Friday, Friday, Friday is the day that we take your calls to the Think Line, 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. T-H-I-N-K. You dial those numbers, you get a voicemail service, you leave me a question or a comment, like the ones you're going to hear today. Point or question up front, one or two sentences, more than that, you don't know what you're asking, you really don't, I'm sorry, uh, and then details to follow. If you do that, you get a much better chance of getting on the air, call volume is up, less calls are getting on, despite my efforts in making these shows very, very long, um, I am I'm getting a lower percentage of total calls in. I might start doing something crazy like picking uh, one uh, one sh- one uh, question uh, every other day or something, or at least on maybe Monday and Tuesday doing one call-in question, just to add a couple more a week or something like that. Um, it's, this is the most difficult show that I do uh, from a standpoint of production, time, and effort. Uh, it really is. It takes about twice the effort to do one of these shows as it does to do a Monday show or a guest call-in show or a standalone show. Uh, but I love doing them because I love hearing from you guys, and I love making these these calls all about you. Based on the way things have been going lately, if you call in on, like, Wednesday or Thursday of the week, you might be more likely to get through my screening. That's a little bonus tip for those that actually don't fast-forward through this part of the show, you know, and go, I don't want to hear about sponsors of the day. So there's a little tip to help you maybe get your call on the air. Also, call from a quiet area. Do not run a weed eater or a chainsaw or call from the back of a motorcycle, and you also have a better chance of getting on the air. Uh, before we get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of those sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Sawtooth Tactical. All the stuff you could ever want to live that tactical lifestyle. From Magpul magazines to Maxpedition bags and everything else in between, including the awesome manly titanium spork. If it's tactical and if it's cool, so it's tactical. They have it at Sawtooth Tactical. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated. Nestled in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. If you've ever wondered why there is the Sawtooth and Sawtooth Tactical, check them out today. Next up today, hey, if you want to be tactical, you probably want to have a gun. If you want to have a gun, you probably want to know what the hell you're doing with it, so you need some training. But even if you have a gun and you know what you're doing with it, because you have the training, if there's no ammunition in it, what do you have? A very expensive club. That's what you have. Or maybe it's something you can go to the pawn shop and get some money for. But it is not really a gun anymore. The law will say it's a gun, but if you actually have to put meat on the table or defend yourself with it, you'll have a really expensive club and nothing more. So make sure you have ammo. Make sure you have lots of it so you can train with it, so you can run your weapon, and so you have it in times of ammunition shortages, which we'll talk a little bit about today. You can find what you're looking for most likely in most calibers right now at BulkAmmo.com with great pricing and great shipping. Shipping so quick, your head will snap when you get the confirmation, especially after the first time that you order and you're set up in their system. Next up today, I want to tell you about our discount vendor of the day. Discount vendor of the MSB today is the Victory Seed Company. 10% off all orders for MSB members. That's just one of the over 40 companies that offer you discounts there. I am working right now, homebrewers, to try to get you guys a discount, but nobody's wanting to play ball with me. I'll keep on it. It took a long time to do it with body armor. I bet you I can do it with home brewing. I was just talking to somebody about that today. 
Uh, here's a little, a little project for you. If you're a home brewer and you'd like a discount to, uh, to, let me make sure I've got the right company in mind that, that we, uh, that we talked about doing this with by email. I'm, I have two go-tos and I want to make sure I'm not going to confuse it and get you the wrong one. Yeah. And I was going to say the wrong one. Northern Brewer. Email, if you are, if you are a brewer and you are interested in buying from Northern Brewer and you'd like a discount from them, just email them today and let them know I mentioned them on the air and that I'll be contacting them. Uh, next week about a way that we can work together. Just say, hey, I heard you guys about you guys today on the, the Survival Podcast. The guy uh, from the show, Jack, said he'll be contacting you guys next week about maybe some way you guys can work together. just want you to know that uh, I heard you there. If they get a couple dozen or maybe a couple hundred emails like that today, when I email them next week, maybe we'll uh, create an on-ramp to get you guys a discount. If it works, it's a test bed. We can try it in other places that have been a little bit sticky. Uh, numbers get people's attention when they're in the business of selling to folks. They are to be, you know, just to be fair on you guys on the Northern Brewer thing, they are my go-to. They, I mean, they are the ones I order. I order from them and one other that since I'm going to go to Northern first here, I won't mention, but there's two companies that I order 99% of the stuff I do my brewing with, and they are one of them because they have an incredible selection, great shipping, great service, and I'd love to have them as a partner. Anyway, so there's your little project for the weekend. Ping them for me. Uh, that's a good segue into the MSB. This is uh, what the MSB is all about, guys. I get you guys discounts. I get people all the time wanting to do some type of an affiliate deal with me. And I always say, give it to my listeners. I don't take any money in affiliate deals. Occasionally, I do a few referrals to things like Amazon and stuff like that where they're not going to do it anyway. Uh, but in general, that's my business model the MSB. I provide you a lot of great di uh, deals, a lot of great discounts. I provide you zip files of every episode that was ever done of the show. Um, I provide you some videos that you can't get anywhere else. I provide you with MSB-only videos uh, showing what's going on here at the uh, property. So it's definitely worth checking out. If you'd like to become a member, go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members or the Member Support Brigade banner. Consider becoming a member and support the show at 18.3 cents per episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, All of you qualify for a discount in the MSB. Just send me an email, service discount in the subject line, one or two sentences telling me about your service, and I'll get you a discount code back if you do it before, not after you join. With that wrapped up, this is episode 1302, so let's talk about the year 1302. 1302 uh, was a bloody time. It really was. And there's something that happens there that even if you don't know about how it happened in 1302, you probably have at least heard about it happening more recently in the same place. And I bet you've heard a poem about this place that I'll read to you today. The place is Flanders Fields. Uh, this is from Atlas Shrugged, who, or Atlas, I'm sorry, Alex Shrugged, who plays on the Atlas Shrugged name, who does all of our history segments for us on tspwiki.com. And his, uh, the one out of his three segments I'm picking today, they earned their spurs in Flanders Field. The French have pushed on Flanders country in what is present-day Belgium, and the Flemish are pushing back hard. The French occupy the town of Burgess, thinking the town is subdued, but they are wrong. The townspeople are sweeping through and killing anyone who cannot pronounce the Dutch phrase, shed und Wind, which probably means I would be dead because I probably pronounced that wrong. It means shield and friend, and it's thought that a Frenchman cannot pronounce it to save his life. Apparently so. The French retaliate with 2,500 mounted knights, 
That was the M1 tank of the day, folks, the Mounted Knight, with supporting infantry totaling 8,000, but their attack is slowed by Flanders' boggy battlefield. As 9,000 men of Flanders swarm over them, apparently the Flemish are not familiar with the French word for surrender. As the French turn to run, the spurs of the knights fall to the ground. The Battle of the Golden Spurs, the reason why the official language of Flanders remains Dutch rather than French by law. This battle was declared an official holiday in 1973. So 1,302 had happened in 1973. They had not forgot. That comes into my take by Alex. Alex's take on this. It was 1973, and they were still torqued off enough to pass a law officially recognizing this battle. That tells you something. Even the Belgians have a hard time getting the Flemish to go along. Um, but most of you know the term Flanders Fields from something different, World War One. John McCrae wrote in Flanders Fields in, um, in 1915. I actually have to correct Alex for once. He's in his stellar stuff. 1919 was the end of the war. 1915, to my recollection, is when this, this poem was published, which makes more sense when you hear the final stanza. But if you've never heard In Flanders Fields before, here it is. In Flanders Fields the poppies blow, between the crosses row on row, that mark our place, and in the sky, the lark still bravely singing fly. Scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead, short days ago. We lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from falling hands we throw. The torch be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. My take, especially on that, and it's more important to me than the 1302 occurrence. <sighs> take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from falling hands we throw. The torch be yours to hold on high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep though the poppies grow in Flanders fields. What that's saying is we gave our lives for something we believed in. Take up the torch. Don't let us down. Don't make our death mean nothing. And there's a place for that. There's a danger there, though. I remember talking to somebody a few years ago about the mess we were making out of Afghanistan. And his response was that since his son-in-law died there, We needed to keep fighting the battle with no explanation as to why it was the right thing to do or how it would work or what it would do for the rest of the world. There is a tendency in war to believe that once you've lost lives, you must prosecute the war, even if the war doesn't make sense. And it's important that we remember in such times that because some men died is no reason for other men to die if there is no just end to the deaths. That's what I take from Flanders Fields. And with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Uh, I want to start out with just a little bit on permaethos because I've got some, lots of stuff coming at me from you guys on it. Okay, I just want to make sure that everybody gets, when you're giving me these suggestions now and asking me questions, permaethos, the plan now is a farm. A farm of 40 to 80 acres, not a two or 300 acre community. It is a farm. 
The community has too many legal problems and roadblocks at the current time. And the more I think about it, the more I realize we need a track record to go forward, not just so that we can sell a, a, a county on letting us do what we want to do, but so that we have enough of a launch pad of knowledge to be effective with something that that, that's that big, because it is pretty big. So the farm is designed to support a, 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 a farm steward, a head farmer, and two tenant farmers and wolfers. Eventually, we want to transition that farm into a micro-community with a few to maybe eight families also cohabitating on that property, and we want to replicate those over and over again. If you're interested in permaethos, it's very important that you understand that that's where we are right now. I do want to cover a couple suggestions and why they do not work. One has been screw it. Get the money and go out and buy a great big property and do the community anyway and call it the Permaethos Campground for members only. It doesn't solve the problem with fundraising unless I go back to my original model of only taking about 20 investors, which part of that was the whole funding issue with the government that I'll explain in a minute and what the government says you can and can't do when you're funding a company and what accredited investors are. Um, so let's say we did it that way. Let's say well, I, can, I can raise enough money to buy the land with less than 35 investors, and I can currently, under the new Jobs Act provisions, raise the money with less than 35 investors. Fine, I can do that. Then guess what I have to do? I have to buy land that is zoned commercial. A campground is a commercial enterprise, so the cost of land just doubled or I end up having to fight a zoning requirement to get the land zoned commercial. I lose the agricultural exemption tax benefits that would actually make the business viable and profitable on such a large piece of property, especially early on and being debt-free. So that model does not work. Okay. The other thing that's been suggested is just have everybody gift me the money. Let me, let me, let me explain something to you guys. I, I really need you to understand this, and if you don't know what permaethos is, I'm going to be done talking about this in about three minutes, and you can go over to permaethos.com and learn where we're at and all the stuff, okay? But when it comes to taking the public's money and capitalizing it into a company, the federal government is very, very serious about this. And Jack Spierko, as much as he loves the ideals and what we're fighting for, and as much as we are going to figure out how to do this, is not going to do it in any way that will result in Jack Spierko occupying a cell in a federal frickin' prison. And a lot of what you guys are suggesting lead to a place where eventually the Department of Making Me Very, Very Sad will show up, put silver bracelets on me, take me away, and try me for federal either extortion or racketeering or violation of SEC policy. I am not going to do that for an ideal because I can't make the ideal work if I'm in frickin' prison. And that's the path that some of these, these little schemes lead to. We have some new things. We have a really switched-on CPA here in North Texas that's a listener to the show that's checking out two angles, and I bet you one or the other or a hybrid of both will work. One is doing what's called a direct public offering. That could cost up to $25,000 to do. If it works, we can probably make that work, and we probably can cut the cost by doing a lot of the work ourselves, On, on but it's a matter of how long it takes and, and things like that. The other model is a co-op approach. And when I look at the letter of running a co-op, the thing that makes it to where we can avoid all the funding issues is it has to be owned by, by members and operated to the benefit of members. Now, with the community model, I can't say that it was quite that cut and dry. Under the Permaethos Community Farm model, 
where the community is virtual. You guys are all over the place, but you can buy stuff from the farm. Okay, I could make that the tagline. I could say Perma Ethos Farms, owned by members and run for the benefit of members. I, I mean that that I, I wouldn't do it because it's actually for the benefit of members, but it's also for the benefit of furthering ideals and and, and local communities and things like that. There's nothing that says a co-op can't do that, but that's exactly what it is. A fully, wholly member-owned enterprise. So I think between DPO and co-op or some hybrid, one way or another we can get this done. Those of you that keep throwing the 501 not-for-profit organization, I can't do it and give you anything in return for your investment. Your investment goes from being an investment to being a charity donation. And then if I return something back to you, unless you're an employee and work there, which not everybody is going to be able to do, which not 90% will not be able to do due to logistics alone, right? I can't give you any return of your investment if it's a 501. And people that keep saying you can, you don't understand the law, you don't know how it works, and you're not the one that's going to go to federal freaking prison. So what I would advise anybody that's really interested in Permaethos, get over to permaethos.com. I have an audio up there presenting the entire farm model. It's about an hour long. Give it a listen. Now we're going to go ahead and take that first call of the day. Hi, Jack. This is Scott from Nebraska. I am interested in learning more about Bitcoin and was wondering if there are any particular resources that you can give to the community that would serve as a good primer. I know that John Bush has a Bitcoin consultancy, And Jeffrey Tucker is very tuned in on the topic. But I'm looking for a book or a piece of digital media that can give me a concise, layman's, no BS understanding of the topic. I'm glad to hear you sounding so recharged after the holidays. Thank you for the show, and I look forward to hearing your answer. First off, let me say I do not purport or claim to be a Bitcoin expert. And um, I have some very recent news on Bitcoin that I'm going to talk about here with this question. Uh, some very bad news, actually, but I don't know that it's bad for all of us, but it's bad news in one way or another, and it's gonna, it's gonna hurt Bitcoin pricing in the short term, no doubt, and could hurt it long term if it turns out to be true, but I, I don't think that it is. Before that, though, let me say the best explanation on Bitcoin that I can recommend that you listen to is by Stefan Molyneux and his video, The Truth About Bitcoin, and I will put a link in today's show notes. And that's it. That's all I'm going to say. That that's the best resource is understanding how it works, what it does, and everything about it from the level that I understand it and up. I would say that is a great resource to understand it. And if you really want to understand it, that's what to do. I don't know of any books um, that, that would do that. Now, here's the bad news that I heard: Silk Road Two, which is a website where people basically can contract for illegal. Activities like buy drugs and, and, and hire prostitutes and stuff like that um, uses Bitcoin, and they had a whole bunch of Bitcoin. They were basically a Bitcoin exchange. Now, understand the difference between Bitcoin and a Bitcoin exchange before I tell you what I've just been told has happened. A Bitcoin is a Bitcoin. It, it, it's, not, it's not subject to anything other than it's a Bitcoin. It's what it is. Okay, An exchange is like a bank. This is the best way to think of it. It's more like a merchant account, but think of it like a bank. So this is where people have to get their heads around what, what goes on when stuff like this happens. If you had dollars in Wells Fargo and somebody hacked Wells Fargo and stole a bunch of money out of Wells Fargo, then you wouldn't say the dollar is the problem. You'd say that Wells Fargo's security is the problem. Well, Silk Road apparently just had $2.7 million worth of Bitcoin hacked out of Silk Road. Now understand, this is a website that 
condones illegal activity. The the guy that's the head of it basically said, find out who did it and take whatever justice you think is necessary on this. Um, I think it's highly possible that with the trouble they're in, the people behind Silk Road took the money themselves and blamed this supposed security flaw, which has been known about since 2011, and like nothing like this has ever happened before. So I think it's an inside job. I, I think it's an inside job, and if you have people running a website where you can buy heroin and contract for murder, uh, I don't trust those people. So, again, this would be like, let's say that PayPal, uh, you, you, PayPal got hawked, hacked, and a bunch of users' money got yanked out of PayPal. You wouldn't blame dollars or pounds, because you can hold pounds in PayPal, by the way, if you're a British citizen. Um, you would blame PayPal. So in that, I blame Silk Road. But the best resource I have for you uh, would absolutely be uh, Stefan Molyneux's uh, uh, video on this. And if you're really worried about keeping your Bitcoins under your own control, move them into a paper wallet. Because, um, and anyway, I use Coinbase, and I went to my Coinbase account today, and all my money is there. And actually, Bitcoin is up, which is weird. It's up from where it was yesterday, even with this news out. We'll see if it if it cram, crams down. Um, again, I want you to understand something about Bitcoin and me. I am not telling you to invest in Bitcoin. I'm not telling you to put a bunch of money in Bitcoin. I have never done that. I use Bitcoin as a means of exchange. Primarily, I receive it. If people want to buy from me in Bitcoin, I'm going to take Bitcoin. What I've done so far is all the Bitcoin that I've, I've, I've taken in, I've kept as Bitcoin. One community member wanted to sell some, so I did a direct buy from that individual. Um, so I, I bought a little bit, but basically I'm just holding what's come in. At some point I may decide to convert it all to cash or convert part of it to cash. Depends on where the balance is. You know, if, it's, if, if I end up with five grand of Bitcoin, I'll probably take some of it out. That's probably more than I want to hold there. Um, unless... Things are looking like there's a good risk play there. But, guys, Bitcoin is a tool. It is a means of accounting. It is a means of exchange. It is a psychological contract. It is what it is. Anyway, let's go ahead and take the next question. All right, Jack. Great news, but I need help. This is Keith from Colorado. I'm going to try and do this in 90 seconds. Tomorrow we sign a lease on a property that has been vegetable row crop. For the past 10 years, at the base of a mountain on the south-facing slope, we have a spring irrigating the property year, well, not year-round, but from spring until fall, so the entire growing season that is getting fed off of the mountain behind the property. We are going to lease this property, and we are going to try and do our vegetables there and do all of our permaculture, food foresting, frugal beds, etc. on the next property that we have that's 20 acres. I need to know how I can plant. Should I plant beans, tomatoes next to each other, beans, tomatoes, peppers, peas? Uh, should I do a three-sister style? Uh, should I row crop it, or should I just swale, contour seed, the whole thing? Um, just looking for guidance on what you would do. Like I said, western Colorado, we have irrigation the entire growing season. Uh, highs here are 100 degrees. Lows here are 60 degrees this summer. Last frost is between April 1st and April 15th. Uh, first frost is between September 31st to October 31st. I'd uh, love to hear what your comments are. Talk to you soon. Bye. Well, I think you're in about as good a shape as you could be. 
Um, you, you talked about growing vegetables and all. You didn't really say if you want to like grow for market or you want to grow for yourself. Um, if you're going to grow for market, you got to think bigger. Obviously, if you're going to grow for yourself, you think more about your own needs. Um, you've got a spring, you've got irrigation, you've got land that's been row crop for vegetables. Odds are, if it's been row crop for vegetables, it, it has had some use of chemicals and things like that, but it's probably been extremely minor compared to dealing with large-scale agriculture when you're talking about things like grains and stuff like that. So it's probably minimal, and it's probably not that big a deal. A couple of things I would recommend, and I want to say that I'm very happy that when you start talking about food forests and Google Mounds and R, you're like, we're going to do that later. Okay, because I was like, don't put all the money into earthworks and stuff on a piece of land that you're only leasing. Because when the lease expires, the guy can just go, well, you're done now. You got to go. Um, so let's let's understand what we've got here. We've got a temporary possession of a piece of land. Um, following some some permaculture ethics, it would be great if we left that land better than we found it, and we shouldn't be resentful that we left behind some of our investment. That that's totally okay. And if we do it right, hopefully the person that picks it up next. We'll, we'll be passing the torch and they'll be running with it versus, oh, let's bulldoze all this. But we want to minimize what, what goes on. If it's been row crop, it's probably been allocated fairly well with spacing. So I wouldn't go trying to reinvent the wheel there. I would stick with, with what they've done. I would try to, you know, I'm not familiar with your climate very well at all. I, I've done a little bit. You're kind of in like a step, uh, a step ecosystem there. And I've done a little bit with that, uh, like a sagebrush step environment. Um, base of the mountain, south facing, could not be better, and irrigation's huge where you're at. And the fact that it's, it's spring water, uh, it's going to be high quality, highly cold, high oxygen, high nutrient, high mineral water, and nobody's screwing with you about using it because it's a naturally occurring spring, so you don't have a lot of Colorado's surface water bullshit to deal with there. So that's great. Um, so stick with kind of the, the, the architecture that they have laid out. If they've been row cropping with vegetables, hopefully this place has a greenhouse on it. If it doesn't, invest in some level of greenhouse technology immediately and start your starts now. This is February. This is now. I mean, you. I mean, if you're signing this lease, I think this call came in two days ago. You probably already got the lease signed. You've got to get if you want to be putting up a lot of vegetables in your climate. You've got to be starting plants this week to next week at the latest. So, so start thinking about that. Um, start thinking about inputs for compost. You want as much compost inputs as you can get your hands on. Talk to local restaurants, local grocery stores, and what they throw away, and get that going and get some birds fast. Start processing that material and making compost. I would set up vermiculture fast. These are things that are can be relocated later. You know, you can relocate most of your birds. You can relocate your worm bins. If not, you can start over. It's not that big a deal. You're going to put this into fertility on the land because you're going to want to do as much as you can to take care of soil. What I do know about your climate is the soils are highly nutrient-rich, far more nutrient there than most people think. The dry air preserves a lot of nutrient, um, but they are also very fragile. So one of the ways we can deal with the fragility of the soil is to get lots of organic matter on the soil Um, if they've been row cropped, start thinking about ways you can, re if you see any type of erosion, think about ways that you can reduce that and just go full tilt with it. Now, what I might suggest is picking some perennials that are highly adapted for your environment, that are easy to replicate with cuttings or with division and start growing some of those perennials now. 
so that when you're ready to leave, you can take cuttings and divisions and root cuttings, etc. with you to your next site. So use this as a, as a nursery. So like raspberries, blackberries, loganberries, all of those, boysenberries, all of those propagate from cuttings and rootings easy. So, and they also will start producing within a second year. So this lease is going to be a couple, three years or more. You get some production as well. But what you're really doing is propagating for the future. Um, apples produced from cuttings. Um, pears can be produced from cuttings. Uh, mulberries, really easy to replicate from cuttings. Not sure on your, uh, you know, I'm sure there's some varieties that will work in your climate. So start thinking about all of those things that you can, and you know, things like black cohosh, your herbs get to be expensive, your perennial herbs, black cohosh, blue uh, cohosh. Maypop might work there, I'm not sure, but that's also a root reprodu reproducible. Um, Jerusalem artichoke, immediate crop, long-term perennial tubers for re-sowing. We grew, well, like I sent me four tubers. I cut them into like 12 pieces. I put them in one 10-foot by 4-foot row. We have 10 gallons of tubers and some more that we've already eaten. I'll be frying some for you guys up next weekend. Battery Workshop, Stephen Harris, come one, come all that have paid anyway or signed up. Any last-minute sign-ups, get in touch with me. I'll help you do that. I think we have 15 attendees right now or 16, something like that. Um, but I'll be cooking you guys some Jerusalem artichokes. On the last night, not the first or second night. Those of you who are familiar with why they're called fartichokes, for some people anyway, you'll you'll know why I'm picking the last night to do that. Uh, but they're awesome, awesome meal. So, you know, by growing some of those, you could leave with enough to grow a ton of those things. And they sell well uh, because there's not a lot of availability of them. So I would start thinking of things that you can do in concert with your annual vegetables to, to lead off. Uh, but I would I would stick to... Let's get some animal activity going on. Chickens are the easiest one. Uh, make sure by this winter you have good quality accommodations for those birds. Your winters are harsh and cold, and you can have birds losing their combs and stuff to frostbite uh, if you don't have a really good insulated coop for them with maybe even some supplemental heating going on there. Composting care of the soil. Uh, your vegetables stick to their, their, their row cropping arrangement that they have as long as there's nothing dramatically wrong with it. Probably go a little bit more interplanted than they would. So, you know, mix your plantings up a little bit. I'll save that for later because I have another question on stuff like that. Uh, and, and just go with it and use this as a learning time. Be okay, okay with failure during this period of time. This is, this is, there's nothing lasting here. This is your, you're drawing in pencil right now and the eraser works just fine. You're not putting ink on the paper yet. Uh, but great adventure ahead of you and do think about when I leave, what am I going to want to plant in my permanent system? What can I grow and propagate here to replicate and take with me when I go? Those are really, really cool ideas. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Eric from Indiana. I'd like to get your opinion on growing garlic and uh, making maple syrup uh, for extra income, but they're doing it in a, a permaculture-type way. Um, background information, I currently uh, grow garlic in raised beds, about 200 bulbs a year. I like to expand that, but I want to avoid the problems that come with uh, monoculture. I also you know, want to make it uh, harvest and planting as quick as I can. Um, the maple maple trees. I have about a quarter acre I would like to turn into a maple sugar bush. 
So I'd just like to get your opinions on some companion planting and how you would do that um, to maintain ease of harvest of the sap and uh, just to, to have a nice little uh, permacultured area of maple trees. Thank you for all you do. Bye. Okay, so let's think about uh, these as two totally different questions because they really kind of are. Um, and let's start off with the garlic question. Well, here's let's just think about the the planting growth and harvest cycle of garlic when you're doing it for peak production. You can actually throw garlic cloves in the ground just about any time of year that the ground's not frozen solid. You can do it in the summer. You can do it in the fall. You can do it in the winter. You can do it in the spring. You can do it anytime you want. I often just chunk garlic cloves here and there and around and everywhere because of that. In general, though, for the best results, the best productivity, you're, you're planting garlic in around September and you're harvesting it sometime in late summer of the next year. This is where you get best development, you get the best chance of starting out well, and, and all of that good stuff. But let's think about the structure of a garlic plant. A fairly large bulb, a big garlic bulb if we're talking real garlic, not elephant garlic, which is not actually garlic, but it's very cool. Um, but if we take real, you know, regular garlic, a, a, a garlic bulb the size of your fist is massive. That's a big tuber, right? If we plant it as densely as we can into a bed, we may not leave a lot of room for other things. But if we plant it in rows or staggered rows, the root system of garlic actually leaves plenty of room for a lot of other vegetative crops. Garlic also does a lot of its growth cycle from September to winter. Then it goes a little bit dormant if it's really, really cold. It comes out in spring and does a lot of its growth cycle early spring because it can handle the cold. And it doesn't really care if it's shaded quite a bit by the time you get into late spring, early summer. It's fine with that. So what that does is it says that we can stack functions and stack time and space with garlic. We can go in and we can plant garlic and plant it with, if we were going to do a fall garden, with fall vegetables like arugula and lettuces and spinaches and brassias, okay? which will end up by the time we get into late winter being harvested out and gone. Ground gets mulched, garlic goes and does its thing, comes up in spring, one of the first things you see coming through the ground is going to be your garlic. Okay, Sometimes if you've got the right climate, you never see it go away. It keeps coming all the way through. And then we can come back in and plant spring vegetables around it. And by the time we get into our late summer where we're going to harvest it, most of those spring vegetables have kind of done their thing. So now I'm talking about, again, lettuces and spinaches and brassias and things that by the time you get into like August where you're going to be pulling your garlic up, You're not really disturbing those vegetables by doing so. Planted right, you could just be yanking it out and not bothering the vegetables around it at all because it's not very deep-rooted. But that, that's kind of the way to solve that problem is to just think about not trying to just exclusively plant the garlic. Now, here's, here's the, the, the super turbocharged benefit. Garlic is extremely useful in repelling pests. So everything that you're planting around your garlic is going to get that pest repulsion. So... That's my advice, is to put in more beds to increase your production, plant your garlic maybe just a little bit less dense than you do when you monocrop it, plant vegetables that are specifically designed to accompany the garlic through the fall and spring, and be kind of done with their thing by late summer, so that when you're harvesting your garlic and getting ready to go back into the fall, 
you're not doing a lot of disturbance or a minimal disturbance. I mean, just to give you an example, if I plant sugar peas right now in this climate, unless we get a really harsh freeze, this is a good time to do it. I just loaded up a hugel bed with a bunch of sugar peas. But by May, they're done. They can't handle the heat, and that's opening the canopy up to the garlics. Now I could go in and plant some other things for summer if I want to, or I can just let that garlic mature, but I've gotten a pea crop out of that. If I do lettuce or spinach right now, I better be putting plants in the ground. Really, it's a little marginal to put seed in the ground, but it'll work. Or broccoli, cauliflower, the brassicas. They're not going to be here in late summer. They're done. So now, if I come in after that and plant something like bush beans around my garlic, I'll probably get a quick crop, but I may disturb them when I pull the garlic late in the summer because they may still be full coming on. But if I think about the fact that I'm going to do that, I can be a little bit strategic with it and probably not lose that much. Or I could do something like put in a vining squash like butternut that's going to sprawl all out and my garlic's just going to grow right up through the leaves and it's going to effectively mulch and my butternut's going to take up a lot more space than its root system. So I don't really have to worry about any disturbance of the butternut squash except right at its roots. And if I have a, a garlic that's right against that root base and it just seems like it's not a good one to pull, I can leave it. Now I've, now I've added another crop. Now I go in in the fall in September. This is a perfect time to plant my, my fall garden. I'm now re-sowing garlic in September. And I'm, I start the whole cycle over again. So I can actually four-season garden if I have the right. And I don't know, your climate's a lot more north than mine if you're going to make maple syrup. So you may not four-season garden, but you can probably do a fall and a spring and a summer, and you're just not doing anything through the winter other than the garlic itself with the right crop choices and things like that. Now, you cheated and asked, too, I mean, maple syrup production. How do I, how do I get permaculture into my maples? Um, you don't do anything with your maples at all. If they're nice and big and happy, they are your canopy species. You're not going to plant too much right up against them because it's shaded there and, and, and it's not going to be, it's going to stay pretty open under there. You could try some, uh, you know, interesting things in there like lots of mulch and trying to do some high dollar stuff like ginseng or golden steel, but that's really, really tough. A little bit up, up into the canopy of that shade, gooseberries and currants, uh, and josta berries, which are gooseberry currant crosses, will all do wonderful. So that's one thing we can get in there. Any herbaceous species that grow in shade, get up under that canopy, and then come out from that canopy of your maples. Let that be your edge and go into things like your shrubs and bushes and things like that that need more sun. I mean, that's really it. If you've got good, healthy maple trees, then you've got a good, healthy ecosystem, and you're just planning into the, the open opportunities that the shade and the edge create. And there's not a lot to be done there other than taking good care of your soil. You know, don't be afraid to throw some, some mulch or some compost up into those maples and things like that. You know, if you have chickens, graze them through there once in a while. Let them kind of break pest cycles. You, maples aren't really heavily hit by pests, but the other things that are, you know, there, that might be a, a, a hiding place for some of your pests. They'll go there for the cool of the day and they come back to hit your garden in the evenings. Uh, or what have you. So that, that would be my advice there, not to sweat that one too much. Um, there's this concept in permaculture that some people get attached to that everything has to be massively polycultured. 
And it, it doesn't really. If you go into a native ecosystem, you might find a thousand varieties on an acre, but you'll find that maybe a half a dozen species, uh, even in an undisturbed ecosystem, make up the vast majority of biomass. That's okay to have the smaller amounts of lots of support species intermingling with something that makes up the, the majority of the biomass. If you think about an oak tree, a mature oak tree, thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds, right? Many tons in a, in a mature oak, uh, just in wood and stick material that stays alive and doesn't die every year, right? An equal amount of biomass in roots under the ground. Uh, and then a huge biomass in deciduous leaf drop and acorn drop, and then stick and acorn caps and all that. Other. I mean, you're talking massive tonnage from one tree. When we look at the, the total biomass in an area, let's say, twice the diameter of the canopy of that oak, if it's kind of an open oak savanna, nothing competes with it other than maybe the fungus in the soil for biomass. But it doesn't mean there can't be lots of other things. So don't get too concerned with the intensive polycultures if your main produ production that you want out of that ecosystem is something like syrup and you've got healthy maple trees. That's great. That's great. Just try to improve the health of the soil is one of your biggest things. Don't rake up all those wonderful leaves and take them away. Rake them up and shred them and put them back where they came from and, and take care of the earthworms. I'll tell you, this is, this is the big secret. If you're taking care of your earthworms, all right, as simple as that sounds, if you're a good steward of your earthworms, everything else will take care of itself. The huge garden that my grandparents grew, looking back now, I can see all the beautiful things, and I can see a hundred things that they were missing. I could go back to that same plot of land that's just grass now because my dad doesn't doesn't grow anything there anymore. And I could turn that back into its original garden and I could have results that would blow away what my grandparents did. But what they did was very, very impressive. And I'll tell you one thing that was done. We took care of the earthworms. There was horse manure. There was straw. There was horse manure. There was straw. There was compost. We kept the. We didn't walk in the beds. We kept everything aerated, and there were earthworms galore. I never bought a worm to go fishing with in my life, when I lived there anyway. And just wait for it to rain, pick up a flashlight, and go outside and start pulling worms. If I really needed some, I could go out there and turn some soil over and find them. You know, if it hadn't rained in a while. Take care of your worms, and you're halfway on your way to permaculture. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Dwight from West Virginia. Um, avid listener of the show, also a proud member of the MSB. Got a question about Bitcoin. Uh, if we, if we are to believe that the Bitcoin is very difficult to mine, uh, as an individual, um, is, do you have any suggestions of how we could go about, uh, obtaining Bitcoin? And if there is any way that, uh, you would suggest, uh, setting up your computer to, to do some mining? Uh, without getting involved in a mining pool or or, or uh, something like that. Um, interested to hear your answer. Thank you very much, and uh, love the show. I appreciate everything you do. Thanks. That one's also kind of two questions, but at least they're very, very related. One is, how do we acquire Bitcoin? And two is, is it worth or is there a valid way for the small-timer to mine Bitcoin anymore? 
The short answer and the best way to acquire Bitcoin right now, there's two answers I have for you. One, buy it. So if you want some Bitcoins, take some dollars and buy it. And the easiest way to know to do that is set up an account with somebody like Coinbase. And you attach your bank account to it, just like you would with PayPal. And you transfer money in and you buy Bitcoin. You'll have to wait quite a few days for the transaction to actually take. But when you buy the Bitcoin, whatever the buy price was the, when you placed the order, that's what you pay. So it's not like you lose in the interim. You just have to wait for the conversion to happen. Okay, so so that is you know the easiest way. The other way that you acquire Bitcoin is you provide a service or a product and you take Bitcoin for it. So you provide something as of value and then somebody says to you, well, will you take Bitcoin for this instead of dollars? And you say yes. That's the primary way that I'm acquiring Bitcoin myself right now. You want to be an MSB member and you want to pay in Bitcoin? Fine. Use Bitcoin and I'll set you up. Easy. Real simple. And then I also have now, for those of you that use Bitcoin and like an episode... If you want to say, hey, I appreciate what you did today, uh, you go by the website, and there's a bit tip it button, and you can click on it, and you can tip me. I have it defaulting to two bucks. You can cut it in half and tip me a dollar. You can cut it in half again and tip me 50 cents. You can tip me a penny in Bitcoin. Zero, 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 whatever, one Bitcoins. Any amount you want. So I'm providing a service in exchange for Bitcoins. So that's, that's the other way that you can get it. Those are the two most valid ways to get Bitcoins right now. Mining. See, this is where you start to see Bitcoin's brilliance, and the people that are just like, I love gold, I love gold, I love gold, Bitcoin sucks, gold rules, Bitcoin sucks, gold rules, and you're just like little trolls. I, I, I can't stand you people. Every story about Bitcoin, you little gold trolls come by, it's not gold, I want gold. Wait, go buy your freaking gold and leave me alone. I've got gold too, moron. It's like just like the people that are belie- that are like, here, here's the facts on gold. The people that keep saying stupid shit like only gold is money. Go all in on gold. Gold, 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 gold. Most of you don't have shit for gold because you don't have any money. Okay? That's that's the that's the first thing. Most of the little trolls out there, gold, don't have jet. You have like one-tenth of an ounce of gold, and it's all it's your life savings in that one damn thing. And some person somewhere has sold you on the belief that one day that shitty little coin is going to make you a millionaire and it ain't going to happen. Okay, that's that's the reality. But the people that actually have gold, have significant gold, 10, 20 ounces of gold or something like that, that are doing this too, you have a religious belief in a metal. It is not magic metal. It is no different than any other metal out there. It just has a certain level of scarcity and a certain level of reserves. And it's as subject to manipulation as any other commodity on planet Earth. But... What actually gives value to gold and silver is actually exactly what gives value to Bitcoin. Understand there will only ever be one Bitcoin. There will be Litecoin and Dogcoin and whatever else, Duckcoin or whatever that people make on the protocol. But there will only ever be one that's actually called Bitcoin. There's a finite number of Bitcoins. I believe it's 22,500,000 or something like that total Bitcoins ever that will ever be mined. It takes a lot of computing power right now to get one Bitcoin out of the hash. To, to, to just ding, 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 ding away at mathematical formulas to do it. When it started, a person with you know a couple of computers and a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of ingenuity could go out and basically prospect for Bitcoin and do fairly well. This is just like gold, gold morons. 
when gold was first discovered in Southern California or the Colorado Rockies, somebody could go out there with a pan and a mule and a little prospecting and start finding gold. Woohoo! Yippee! I claim! Yay! I'm rich! But for every, you know, ten that went out there, one struck it rich that way. But it was possible. Over time, all the easy gold got picked up off the surface and people had to start digging deeper into the soil. And mining took on a new realm where people had to, but somebody was doing this already even before it was necessary and they were already doing better. They were setting up big sluice boxes and, you know, dredging out major portions of streams and stuff and that gold started to go. And bigger concerns with more money and more startup capital did better than the guy with the mule and the, and the gold pan. Okay. But even that started to dry up in time, and then we had to get into the point where we had to start bringing in, as the industrial age moved on and all, big actual equipment and start doing massive stuff. And today, to get gold, they're strip mining. They'll move 10 tons of dirt and bathe it in acid to get an ounce of gold today. And that's where gold gets its perceived value, the amount of energy necessary to produce and refine an ounce. This is why you can't just set up your little laptop today, plug a few algorithms into it, and start mining Bitcoin and make any money. The cost of energy from that machine to finally chunk out a tenth of a Bitcoin is more than the value of the tenth of the Bitcoin, just like it's supposed to be. We've, the, 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 the guy with the mule, the analogy of the guy with the mule mining Bitcoin today, he's gone. He's done. He can't make any money. He can do it. This is like the guy today that gets a metal detector and a, a pan and goes down on public lands and you know occasionally finds a nugget. And he might say, well, I, I made like $5,000 in gold last year, but if you do the math, he worked for 50 cents an hour. And he has a lot of money into that too, and gas and all his equipment and everything. He's not making any money. He just isn't. You know, and there might be the one rare guy that can figure it out, and that's in the gold world, but not in the Bitcoin world. He's done. The guy with the, you know, the 10 guys and the big sluice boxes and the shafts and they were moving tons and tons of dirt a day and washing it into the creek, they're ebbing off. And we're getting into the phase where you have over 50% of the total reserves of Bitcoin mined. And the difficulty's doubling like every 11 days. We're into the phase where we're bringing in earth movers, bulldozers, track hose, And you're getting to the phase where the people with the energy equivalent of strip mining are able to continue to pull out Bitcoins. And as that happens, over time, the value steadily increases. As more and more people want to use the currency and less currencies being produced and things like happen, like somebody hacks a bunch of Bitcoins, where'd they go? We don't know. I think the Silk, the Silk Road guys know where they went, honestly. Um you end up in a place where you start pushing the value up. And what most people don't understand about Bitcoin is it's done exactly what it's supposed to do. If you See, very early on I read, well, what do the people that make this thing say it's supposed to do? And what they said is it's supposed to go through a massive inflationary curve. It'll be very volatile in that inflationary curve, but it'll continue on an upward trend. Eventually it'll hit a place of stasis. It'll level off in value and become stable. And that's years and years in the making. And one of the, my evaluation criteria is, okay, so I read this five years ago. And I, I've always been skeptical of it. But does it perform the way that the people that designed it said it would perform? And I've seen it perform that way. So I'm going to tell you that mining is not a viable alternative. 
and I have some pretty technologically switched on people in this audience, some of them even mine Bitcoin or used to mine Bitcoin, who have who verified that for me. And most of those people, even though they were pretty switched on, and even though they did really well mining Bitcoin, have now left the gold mine and gone to the silver mine. And in other words, they're now mining Litecoin. And some of these other cryptocurrencies may be worth mining. The problem is, and I put out this 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 video on YouTube yesterday, and I said, let's... Let's start having 12 medals at the Olympics. And it was a, a parody on being fair and everybody gets a ribbon and a trophy. But I named off a bunch of things like, you know, uh, instead of just gold, silver, and bronze, we'd have brass and steel and chrome and tin and aluminum for medals. Well, kind of if you start thinking about it that way, every time somebody comes up with a new cryptocurrency, it's like adding a new metal to the marketplace. And some metals are just shit and nobody really wants them. Now, I will tell you one thing. If you're an environmentalist, You should love cryptocurrencies because the amount of environmental damage used to produce an ounce of gold right now is not worth, it's not worth the $1,100, $1,200, $1, whatever gold is today. It's not worth it. Financially, it's worth it or they wouldn't be doing it. Ethically and long term, the damage done by the production of one ounce of gold in today's mining environment is absolutely not worth the damage done. Cryptocurrencies don't do that damage. Another way that I find them superior. Um, I'll also say a full disclosure on Bitcoin right now. One of the things that really concerns me is a guy named Matthias Chang, who's kind of a out-there conspiracy theorist, but he's also very, very smart. And I'll tell you how I know all this in a minute. Uh, wrote an article recently saying that the global elitists may in fact co-opt Bitcoin and turn it into a global currency. So instead of fighting it, that the Morgans, the Chases, the Rothschilds may just get on board with it and basically have a default global currency since it's global and since it already does everything a global currency would do, why not just co-opt it? That's a concern. And I'll, again, I'll tell you how I know Matthias in a minute. Um, my belief is, though, they would never do it the way that he's saying. And what do I mean by that? He's basically saying that they'll just – it's a trap. That's whatever because the Admiral Akbar thing, right? It's a trap! Like they did it all along, or they'll just co-opt it. No, I think what they would do is they would get together, and, and more, J.P. Morgan already has a, a patent filing out for a similar type of payment system, uh, is they would create their own. Uh, and they would call it, you know, Morgan coin or something like that. But they wouldn't call it coin. They'll, they'll call it, they'll, they'll want to distance themselves from the stigma that they themselves are building And then introduce this as a vial. Okay, this is what you said you wanted. Well, here it is. And, and then they will be. They, they will never, ever, ever, and I mean freaking ever, create a global currency where they are not the central authority. The problem for them with Bitcoin is there is no central authority, and there can be no central authority. So if Silk Road was hacked, it's a government hack. Let me tell you that right now. So I'll say it again. If Silk Road was legitimately hacked, your government did it. The United States freaking government did it as part of their slander campaign. That's, that's what I believe. Or it's a corporate attack by the upper elite layers of banking security and they stole the money. That, the, here's the problem for whoever stole it. It's all part of a of a record it's the the bill in bitcoin the bills are marked 
the Bitcoin exists as 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 a, a code. If it's ever spent anywhere, it's auditable on the public blockchain. Sure, I can meet you in a dark alley and I can dump it into your paper wallet or whatever, but it's it's like dirty money now. And sooner or later, whoever took it's going to want to turn it into cash. And when that happens, you find out who really did it. So there's not a lot of motivation to steal that much Bitcoin that publicly unless you just want it to not be there anymore. But the days of mining it, if you want to take up mining and you want to, you know, even if you think you're going to mine Bitcoin one day, <laughs> uh, I'd cut my teeth on it on something that has a lower difficulty plane right now, like like Litecoin. And you could always mine enough Litecoin to buy Bitcoin or whatever, but uh, it's just not... It's just not what I'm 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 thinking of of doing right now. Let me rephrase it. Not what I'm thinking of doing right now. I'm not thinking of buying any coins. It's not to my thinking, it's not a valid use of your time, effort, money, and resources right now uh to try to mine Bitcoin. With that, let's take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Paul in Seattle. I was calling to get your thoughts on investing in bonds. During your show on Monday you said that investing in bonds was investing in debt that our children will pay for. This really resonated with me. After listening to your guest, Craig Rowland, I've been interested in the permanent portfolio. As you might recall, this is an investment strategy where you put money in stocks, long-term treasury bonds, cash, and metal at 25% each. I'm trying to think of alternatives to the bonds in this plan that would fill the same function, in that they provide a return during the times of prosperity as well as deflation, but don't involve giving money to the Fed. Any thoughts would be appreciated. Thanks, Jack. Okay, it's it's a good question, but you always have to be careful if you're going to cut your nose off to spite your face. I'm not saying there's not other options, because there are, and I'll talk about them. But what I am saying is that you you can't let what I said, which is absolutely 100% truth, um, in any way influence you to the point where you think that if you don't buy bonds from the government, um, that, that that in of itself is going to uh, prevent anything from actually happening. And here's what I mean. It's not untrue in any way that when you buy a bond, you're assessing a tax on your children, but you really are not. The seller of the bond is. The government is assessing a tax on your children. So in this instance, they're using you and your money to do that. They're saying, we'll take your $100 this month and we'll give you a piece of paper that actually will take your, you know, your $96 this, this year and we'll give you a piece of paper. Then a certain number of years will be worth the face value of $100. We'll give you $4 in interest on that bond. Okay, that's basically how a bond works. You you buy a face value bond for less than its face value with a term. One year, two year, three years, and there's an interest rate associated with that, 2%, 2.5%, whatever. And then that's how a bond works. And that's how you're assessing a tax on your children because, you know, if you hold that bond for 20 years, a 20-year bond or a 30-year bond, you're not working anymore. Um, your kids are the ones that are saddled with the debt associated with that bond. Now, if if we all didn't buy bonds, what would they do? Well, they'll just issue the bonds and buy them themselves uh, by using the Federal Reserve to create money out of nothing, and they'll still assess the tax. So the fundamental reality 
The fundamental reality is the tax is being assessed on our children, whether we want it done or not, and whether we participate or not. That doesn't mean we should give it our tacit participation. It doesn't mean that if morally and ethically you're opposed to that, you shouldn't refrain from doing it. It does mean that you do need to understand that you're only making a symbolic gesture. That's all you're doing. It's like, it's like not shopping at Walmart. It would take a hell of a lot of people not shopping at Walmart to make a difference. You're not shopping at Walmart is your individual ethical objection to something about Walmart's business practices, whatever it is for you. Okay? Where some people will say, you know what? I'll go to Walmart and I'll buy the stuff from them that actually is of high value to me and I won't buy all their crap and I'll try to actually. An example would be. When Walmart pulled pink slime meat off its shelves, it effectively destroyed the industry, which is trying to make a comeback now, but it has a tough road to hoe. Only Walmart had that much power. Because as soon as Walmart did it, that was it. The last hope was McDonald's, because McDonald's was buying the pink slime meat, largest producer of meat on the planet, and they said, we, we can't do this either anymore. And that was it. A whole industry was changed mostly because consumers of two of the largest companies in the world changed their their taste, didn't change where they shopped. So there is some of that going on there. But I understand the person says, I will not go to Walmart, period. End of story, no way. Okay, They do too much evil in the world, and they got their freaking Obamacare exemption and all this other crap, and I will not go there. And I understand the person says, you know what? Walmart has many flaws, but they also have a lot of opportunity for a lot of people, and they employ over a million and a half Americans, so I will shop there for what individual choice. So what I'm trying to say here with this bond issue is understand that that's what you're making. You're not making an earth-shattering choice that will change the face of anything. You're making a personal choice of where you put your money. And you will not change the future of this country and our debt load by not buying a U.S. Treasury bond. So if it's the best fit for what you're doing, you may still choose to buy it, or you may, on ethics, choose not to buy it. Either is an acceptable answer to me, because I'm not here to tell you what your ethics are supposed to be. You decide your own ethics for yourself. And the person that's going to comment, if you meant half of what you said, you tell nobody to buy bonds, then get rid of all your, your U.S. dollars, fool, Okay. Because I know you're out there. You're, you're getting ready to type right now. You're on your phone or your computer, and you're, I'm going to kill him. He is so sanctimonious because I hate him. I listen to him every day, even though I hate you know that guy, you, and you think you've got me here. Every dollar in your pocket, every dollar in the bank, every penny in your drawer, every United States dollar in existence is the same thing. Every dollar is brought into existence through the issuance of debt. All right? So if you want to be a purist on this and say, well, I don't want to contribute to what the Federal Reserve is doing at all, the only option that you have is to do no more business in dollars, hold no more dollars, and leave the country. That's it. Because as long as you're here and doing anything functional, either producing or consuming, you're, you're, you're aiding that system. That is the system we have right now. So that's, that's part of how you look at it. But what are some viable alternatives? Well, what you really are looking for in a bond is a reasonable return of investment that pays you some interest so the money's just not sitting there doing nothing, and stability. You can go and put a lien against somebody else's children if you don't want to do it against your own. 
Um, and you might pick a country that's financially fairly responsible with their money, even though you might not agree with all of their politics, where, yeah, they're issuing a bond, but their, their debt load is not such that they're destroying all future for their, their, their citizens. And one nation that fits that bill fairly well is Australia. Now, if you run out and buy $5,000 or $50,000 or half a million dollars worth of Australian bonds after you hear today's show and come tell me you did, you're going to hear this in your ear. Because I'm going to smack you right in the freaking ear because that's not what I'm saying to do. I do not give direct financial advice. I am holding up one example. I am saying this is the type of thing you're looking for and then here's the risks against it. Right now, a five-year Australian bond is paying 3.4%. A 10-year bond is paying 4.1%. They are paying better rates than our own government. But it's not that simple. It's not that simple. One, most people aren't going to go out and actually buy an Australian bond. You're going to buy into a bond fund that holds Australian bonds. And those funds can do well or bad, ups and downs and dips, depending on when the fund manager is buying and selling his bonds, because they're a marketable bond. It's a marketable security. It's not like the bond that you buy directly that you you know dust off and put in your drawer. It doesn't usually work that way for people. You can directly buy foreign bonds. It's a little more complicated. But most people are going to do the easy route and buy a bond fund. The bigger risk, though, is now you're not holding American dollars. Got it? You're holding Australian dollars. If the value of the dollar goes up against the Australian dollar for more than the interest rate, you lose. If it were to go up, let's say the dollar increased over a five-year period by exactly 3.41% per annum over the Australian dollar, you would break even. If the Australian dollar goes up against the dollar, you do even better. Because the, the, the gain is on the Australian dollar side. You're, you're playing a lot. It's a lot more of a gamble than the hedge represented by the, see, the, let's talk about the permanent portfolio. Made up of four things. Okay. And, 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 and one is U.S. government bonds. And the reason they do, one is gold. Um, and, and when we look at the other components, they are 25% in cash and 25% in U.S. stocks. Okay, so what you're actually doing there is you're spreading your risk and, and, and appreciating your gain. And it doesn't just sit like that. You actually, at times when you, you end up with something taking a real big run upward like gold, and now you're unbalanced. Now it's not, it's not about share counts. It's like, you know, 25 shares of this, 25, it's, it's dollar value. So let's say gold makes a big run up, and all of a sudden now you're sitting at 40% gold in value. Well, you would sell off enough gold and then reallocate into the other three classifications. So you'd buy a little bit more stock, a little bit more cash, and a little bit more uh, long-term U.S. Treasury bond. right? Or if your stock portfolio jacks up, so like all of a sudden now you're holding 50% of your value in your stocks. You sell, you take your gains, and reallocate it through the other three. So whichever one goes up, you're profit-taking and redistributing. That's a permanent portfolio. So if you're going to eliminate the long-term U.S. Treasury bonds, you have to replace them with something that's similar. The cash is to flat-out hedge against all things. You can't lose other than to inflation. And if you ever need money, that's what you take. So the cash is not tied up. All right. So the cash is freely available. It's liquid. That's why that's part of your portfolio. The long-term bonds um, will do well 
during shitty market periods, usually. When stocks are high, bonds fall. When bonds are high, stocks go down. That's usually how it works. So you're playing that as well. And then the stocks are traditionally the best return, and gold is protection during periods of inflation. So that's what the, the designer, Harry Brown, was looking to do uh, when he put this thing together originally. So that's the question then, right? So since what the Treasury bond is supposed to do is do well during prosperity um, and during deflation, and, and, and but just kind of just sit there and languish during a, a real run-up, a real run-up of stocks, you're going to see bonds just kind of blah, right? Then that's that's what you have to replace. There's a couple things you could do. Um, again, you could look outside of this country. You can buy bonds from a corporation, so you could go into corporate bonds. So a company will often sell bonds in addition to stock. A stock is an ownership share in the corporation. So if you buy one share of Ford, then you have one share of Ford, and its value is based on the current value of the share and assumed growth in the company. And there's a market for that, the stock market, and it trades openly, in this case in the Dow. Some trade on S&P, there's other stock exchanges, but that's how it's valued. So if you want money out of your stock tomorrow from Ford stock, all you can do is put it up for sale and hope somebody else buys it for more than you paid for it. If it goes down, you lose. If it goes up, you gain. Ford pays a dividend. Okay, which means they return a portion of profit to their shareholders. That's based on how much profit and what the company decides to do for dividends this year. There's no fixed formula for this with Ford. They, they might decide, like even though there's a profit, it's not responsible to pay a dividend right now, that the money needs to be reallocated back into the company. Or they might decide we had a great quarter or a great year, let's pay a really good dividend and attract more investors. All right? That's stock. But Ford might also say we need to raise some funds. So they'll do a bond round. And they'll say, we will pay 4% on money on a five-year bond. And you can buy that bond. Or you can buy a fund that invests in bonds like that. And those, those typically, tip, not always, typically follow a similar pattern to savings bonds. Because when a company's stock is down and they need to raise capital, and it's not trading at a higher frequency, and their profits are low, it becomes a little more difficult for them to attract capital. So one way that they can do that is say, hey, we're still profitable. We'll give you 5% on your money versus 1% in the bank. So you could replace it with that. But again, you're leaving the perceived, anyway, security of a U.S. savings bond. Because here's the reality. People say, well, what if the government goes broke? Then your dollars are worthless, too. And then your gold is going to explode. That's the hedge there. So that's how you have to think about it. But just please don't think that you personally owning a bond is actually personally responsible for the debt that your kid will owe in 20 years. Because that debt is going to be, the debt's 17 trillion freaking dollars, folks. By the time we elect another president, mark my words, 22 trillion or higher. No matter what you do. So in some levels, in some situations, this is where I, you know, this, you know, when I talk to a lot of anarchists, well, it should be this way or it should be that way. Or I understand what it should be. We got to work with what is. And like it or not, for right now, this is the system we have. And every once in a while, I hear my dad's voice on this. I don't give a shit about the debt 
because I ain't going to pay it, and you ain't going to pay it, and we ain't never going to pay it. And sooner or later, the whole thing's going to be reset anyway, and there's going to be a lot of misery around that. And right now, all you can do is deal with what you got. Those words were spoken to me in the 1980s by my father, Jack Sr. He's proven dramatically correct over the years. Let's take another call. Jack, this is Carl from Michigan. I have a question as far as how do I test for chemicals and pesticides on my uh, land and in my water? Uh, I bought this. I bought 10 acres about eight months ago, and I have 10 acres next to me that is farmed. And I'm assuming they use chemicals. Um, and I have a farm a drainage system that's tiled uh, next door, and the water comes on my property. So I was just wondering, how can I test for these uh, chemicals and biological or web or um, products? And uh, is that's about it. Thank you. An interesting question, and I'll give you a straight answer and then an answer you're probably not expecting. The straight answer is you can test for any chemicals that you want to on your soil by contacting your local agricultural extension for a soil test and tell them you're not just interested in you know, your nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium levels and your elemental levels and all, but you're also interested in testing for, uh, for chemicals, uh, along the lines of if you were going to be organic, would, would your soil qualify? You know, are there, uh, herbicides, uh, fungicides and, and pesticides in your soil and you want testing done for that? And they'll can advise you of the different tests that are available. With water testing, um, I, I'm, I'm going to say that I wouldn't be hugely worried about it unless this water is designed for human consumption. Uh, because there's only going to be so much that's going to get actually down into the water table itself, unless you're talking about surface water, which we'll get to in a second. Um, you're more concerned if you have farming going on that maybe you have some bacteria in your water. And if you just Google water test, water testing, you can find lots of companies that will do very detailed water tests for you and test for just about anything you can imagine that you want to find out. And I would simply run the type of test that would be run for a person when they're buying a house and they have the water tested from a well, if you're talking about well water, and say, you know, is this water potable? Is this safe to drink? Because that would be the biggest concern I would have there. Because here's the reality. If you had said, I am right next to a 5,000-acre farm that's growing corn and beans and they're out there plowing and spraying every year, uh, my advice would have been to move. Since you're next to somebody that's farming about 10 acres, the amount of problem is probably mitigated a great deal just by that alone. They're not going to be doing highly mechanized stuff, but they're probably going to be doing things that I would say, if nothing else, are very rude. Okay, so here's what I mean by rude. If you spray your herbicides and pesticides during high winds and they, you know damn well they're going to blow over onto your neighbor, you are a rude asshole because they don't want your shit on their property. And it's just like leaving your fence opening, let your bull run out and, 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 and sodomize their cows, or leaving your gate open and letting their chickens get into their garden and tear it apart. It is not their responsibility to keep your shit out. It is your responsibility to keep your shit in. And a lot of people that are farming right now that are spraying during high wind events and stuff like that, you need a good smack in the face with a frozen frozen fish. Something along the lines of a mackerel or a trout would probably do well. Because it is extremely rude, and it's extremely obnoxious, and it happens a lot. And I, I've read a lot of research about how it happens, and, and that's why I'm a little bit pissed off that people are ignorant enough to do it, because you know damn well what you're doing. Here's the other side defending those people. There's a certain time of the year this stuff has to happen, and so generally it's a windy time of the year. 
So they can only do so much to avoid it. So the people that don't worry about it at all, you're assholes. The people that do your best and just sometimes you got to get it done because that's the way you farm right now. I think you're farming in a way that's not really sustainable, but I understand why you do what you do. Try to be a realist here. So what we're really saying is that there is going to be some chemical and fertilizer drift onto your on your land. That we know that's going to happen. So testing isn't really the key here, other than finding out if you have something really really bad going on. It's how do we stop it or how do we mitigate it? So the first thing I would do is all along the property line between you and this, these people, I would plant first a row of very hardy leguminous trees. And then I would come out about 10 feet from them and I would plant a row of very hardy leguminous shrubs. Something pretty, something ornamental, but something not going to be heavily relied upon for food. Black locusts. I don't know, mimosa, autumn olive, whatever. And I would create a break. And I might even go in front of that and plant a row of some type of really cool ornamental. And yeah, if you have bees and stuff, they might get into that a little bit, but they're going to be nowhere near as affected by it if you take that approach as if you let it go all over your land. Okay? And I'm going to stop it there. I'm going to think of it this way. It's almost like a giant gray water system. I want to filter out what these people are doing. If it's a wet area, I'm going to plant it with reeds. And I'm going to let them take up a lot of that chemical. And I'll tell you what's going to happen. These plants that can handle it, to a large degree, are going to slowly over time break down those toxins and either render them inert or bind them up in a way that they become uh, useless. In fact, they're going to destroy them or render them inert is the way to do it. So that, that's it. This water concern, it bugs me. Okay, So it sounds like you have water that actually flows off of their land into your land. What you want there is a silt pond. And from the silt pond, you want to go to uh, uh, another pond. You want that pond all planted with rushes and, and things like that. And then that pond can overflow on your land, and that water will be pretty damn safe at that point. But if you've got water directly flowing on your property off of chemically treated ground, that water is probably tainted as it gets, and you do not want that. So my big approach for you is let's, let's wall off this whole property line. Fast-growing leguminous trees, which is a good thing anyway for your environment. Closely planted and create a wind block. A secondary wind block with a, a, a tall-growing hedge-type plant. And I would also go with leguminous. And I wouldn't, plant, I wouldn't plant things that you would rely on for food there. You might in the second layer. But that first layer, it's just, it's, you know, if it's locust, you've got a great coppice wood product there. So you can cut firewood and fence posts and stuff like that, and that's going to be fine. Um, another plant that might work in, interplanted with that would be, what are they, Osage Orange, um, the big horse avils. That tree also makes a really, like you can graft it to itself, or as it grows, you can just basically take branches of that thing and wrap the branches around each other so they grow in a spiral, and you can basically turn that into a fence, a living fence, very thick and very dense, and that should mitigate a lot of that. You've got roots taking up that crap, you've got, You know, a, a, a bush line now causing that drift to hit that bush line and drop. Okay. And that's, that's probably the best that you can do. And again, if you have a water flow in, a silt pond, and then a small pond full of rushes and cattails and stuff like that, and 
I'm going to tell you what a lot of people won't agree with, but, but I'll tell you, I think that as you're cutting those rushes and all, those can be used as mulch. Those will end up being very nutriently dense, and they will filter and, again, render inert or eliminate most of your toxins, though I would not do it initially. Because first you're trying to, you know, like, I would get rid of that shit for the first couple of years. And I would say once the system's really healthy, once you have a really heavy biology working there, the, the outputs from those systems are actually going to be quite beneficial. And I will tell you, watch the, you might be able to just, if you got to find out what they're doing. If they're doing a little bit bad, by, ru by running it through biological filtration, you might be able to use it as an asset right away. If you look at the video that Jeff Lawton put out recently, where they went and they turned four acres of a conventional farm in Jordan into a permaculture paradise, they actually used waste agricultural water to do this. I'm going to have him on the show as soon as possible. He wants to get back on and talk to you about some things. I'm going to ask him about this very thing when I have him back on, so you can learn more from that. But those are my initial recommendations. In fact, I'll bounce this question off Jeff when we have him on. Let's take another one. Jack, it's Ken from Tennessee here. Uh, I wanted to just go ahead and give you a scenario real quick. With the MyRA and uh, everything, well, um, let's say that the MyRA happens, and then all of a sudden they give the news, which I think is probably going to happen. They give the news up to a certain dollar amount. You can give money from your 401k into your MyRA because uh, now this allows them to get their hands on it. Um, if someone wanted to get there, let's say uh, Bob had $50,000 in their 401k, and the government was going to allow them to move 25000 of their 401k into their MyRA, and Bob has the great idea of moving the money out of the 401k into the MyRA and then moving from the MyRA into a self-directed IRA, should he do that? Thank you very much for everything you do. Goodbye. No, it won't happen. And I'll tell you why. You just came up with the only reason that it would ever make sense for it to happen, so that you could get money out of your 401k and into your own private IRA without quitting or leaving your job. That, that is the only valid reason for what you just described, because here's why. If you have a 401k, there is a bond fund inside your 401k that holds U.S. government bonds just like MyRA does. The only difference with the MyRA bonds is minimal investments are reduced to almost nothing, and the government will oversee the plan. When they say you can't lose in a MyRA, your investment's guaranteed and all, that's, that's what any government bond is. It's guaranteed by the government. It's not like a new guarantee. It's the same. So the, the, the summation there would be then that, okay, so the government wants more money in bonds, so they would say to you, Joe Taxpayer, hey, Joe, guess what? Here's what you can do now. You got a 401k and your employer has included MyRA as one of your investing options. If you'd like to get that thing off the ground quick, you can roll some of your 401 money into your MyRA. Well, MyRAs are already required to be rolled into an individual retirement account when the account exceeds $15,000 or after being possessed for 30 years. What they're betting on is most of them will not exceed $15,000 and that most people will leave the money sit there till 30 years because what they're going to do is this. This is what they're going to do. Over time, they'll raise the cap. They'll say, if people like this investment, there's no reason for us to cap it at 15. 
That's just to make it sellable to people initially because the people that are going to use this the most are low-income earners. They're going to throw 25 bucks a month in it or 50 bucks a month in it maximum um, as an additional adjunctive investment. And if you're doing that, it's a long damn time before you've seen 15 grand. So they've got plenty of time to raise the cap. The other thing that they'll do is when they start hitting the caps, they're not going to do anything. Like you're going to get your balance one day, it's going to say like $15,050. And it's not going to have a big red thing. Roll your money now or you'll lose it or some shit. It's just going to be like, you know, your account is now eligible. Might be on there. That's about it. Well, might be eligible is now eligible means I don't have to do anything. And people are going to let the money sit there anyway. Or when they roll it into an IRA, they're just going to go, well, this worked for this long. I'll just leave it in this form. And when you roll it, it's just going to, it's going to go into a different account. But it's going to be the same investment, right? So that's the, down the road. The whole selling point is this is for people who don't have a 401k or can't, you know, they, they want a, an easier way to invest or their employer doesn't offer one. And yeah, it's going to be sitting right alongside 401ks in, in companies by the end of the year. We know that. We know that's going to happen. But there's no benefit to the government in saying you can go from your 401 to my IRA. There's a big loss for 401k plan administrators who pay for government and buy their man in Washington lots of trinkets. So that's not going to happen. Um, the way that they'll increase the, the, the money into MyRA is by opening it up to more and more people and promoting it. It's such a great investment. It's another great step for your retirement. What they're going to do, watch. Watch them do it. They're going to go out to all the little financial liars. Oh, I mean advisors. Oh, no, I mean liars, financial liars. The consumer-level financial advisor is generally a dumbass that's a relationship salesperson that does whatever his company says to do in recommending a portfolio. They don't really take the time to evaluate all the meetings that they do. Let me tell you something. When, you're, when your financial advisor says, I want to sit down with you and discuss your dreams for the future, and he's doing two things. Number one, he's establishing a relationship with you so that you will trust him and follow his recommendations and remain loyal to him and his company. And number two, he's covering his ass for all the government regulations that say that there's certain things that have to be met in making financial recommendations to you. He is not actually trying to set you up with a unique portfolio. In fact, I'm going to tell you the freaking truth. If you take a successful financial advisor at the consumer level, and pull a hundred of his portfolios of people within a 10-year age bracket, they all look the same. Yeah, let me say it one more. They all look the same. There's nothing different about them. They all look the same to within 5% allocation. Because the company always comes back with the same shit based on your age. Period. Somebody might have a lot of money, some might have a little money, but the allocations are all the same. Do you get that now? The allocations are all the same. They're liars. Because they're trained to be and they don't know any better. And they're not doing it to be evil to you. They really believe in what they're doing. All right? But they're going to go out now just like they took away the cash option in the 401ks. Just like they took away the cash option in the 401ks. You get that? Just like they took it away and replaced it with a bond option and then rolled out this MyRA next to it to put lots of money into bonds. They're going to go out and they're going to... Because this is what your financial advisor does now. Well, we have Social Security... We have your 401k, and now we need your individual retirement account. Your someday money, your later day money, and your never money, right? I've heard the same shit from so many people. All right. And they're going to say, and now we have the MyRA. 
So what we want to do at work, we want to make sure that we're, we're making best use of your 401k and your employer match. And this is like a micro social security account. So we want to make sure we're contributing to this. And we want to make sure that we're not just relying on those things in social security. We're going to put a fourth leg under the stool here with your own individual investments. We want to put those all into an IRA, though, either conventional or Roth. And I'll lie to you about why you would choose one over the other, because unless you're a moron, you would always choose the Roth, unless you're like two years from retirement or something like that. Uh, you would always choose the Roth. But I'm going, to, I'm going to make up a bunch of bullshit that sounds like there's a reason to choose one over the other, because that's what I've been trained to do. And we want you to invest at least X amount in this Roth IRA, and that's what I actually get paid on. And I'm so stupid, I don't know, I just took some of your money. You could be investing with me and put it into my IRA but I've been told to say that, so I'm going to do what I'm told because I'm a good drone. They will unleash the droves of financial advisors and they will convince them that this is the best thing for their client because you live in a neo-fascist government where government and corporation are always grabbing each other's ass on a daily basis and patting each other on the back with stinky fingers after they grab ass. At your expense. And if you don't think this is going to happen, I am telling you within several years, the standard financial advisor, especially the new financial advisor, you know the guy that's down on his luck and couldn't find a job and sees an ad for American Express Financial Advisors, and he has a degree and shit, and he knows a little bit about stuff like this, so he's going to apply to become one, especially the new ranks of financial advisors who haven't been through the industry long enough to at least become a little bit seasoned and start to realize some of their own bullshit, That guy is going to go out and say, yep, this is a great new thing. This is a great new thing. It's another leg under your stool. That will be exactly the way that they will sell it. I should charge them a royalty when they do. Anyway, no, they won't do it, and that's why. And yes, everybody will soon be singing the praises of what a wonderful thing my RA is especially when a Republican takes over the presidency next time and it doesn't have the stinking stigma of Obama's MyRA, and it's still around and people seem to kind of like it and the radio talk show hosts are busy beating on something new, it will be a wonderful thing and you will be adding it to your portfolio for as broad a diversification as possible. Because that's how stupid America is. Let's go on and take another question. Hey, Jack, this is Aaron Rose here in Denver, Colorado. My question is uh, for Stephen Harris. Um, I'm, it's about inverters for emergency backup use. Uh, the question is, do you have to ground an, uh, an inverter, a 1,600-watt inverter, prior to use? Uh, the background is I um, got a Whistler 1,600-watt inverter for use whenever the power goes out to hopefully power the um, the uh, furnace in our house in the middle of the winter. It's been super cold this winter, and if the uh, the power did go out for a while and we were uh, scrambling to make sure we stayed warm enough in the house. So I've got a 1,600-watt inverter. It's going to uh, be running off of a idling vehicle outside and powering the um, furnace, hopefully, but the inverter's instructions say make sure that the uh, Inverter is grounded prior to use. It's got a little grounding screw on there. So my question is this. Um, how should we go about grounding the inverter before hooking it up to the car to run a cable to the uh, 
furnace, uh, should I even worry about that? And, uh, and the second question is, you know, for a small house, uh, do you think this is really going to be a, a functional backup? So thank you, Jack. We really appreciate you. And uh, look forward to hearing from Stephen Harris. I am going to answer this one for you for a couple of reasons. One, because I know the answer, uh, including the answer Steve would give you. Uh, and number two, because you're not going to like it. And generally, I think people get like getting answers they don't like from me better than getting answers they don't like from Stephen Harris. And number three, because Stephen Harris is up to his ears in work and getting ready to come down here next weekend to run a battery bank workshop to discuss this. Here's the answer. You're not going to do it at all. I'm sorry, you're not going to do it at all. There's a couple things at play here. Um, number one, your vehicle and its alternator in and of itself with one battery sitting there that's designed to crank your vehicle and run the peripheral services of your vehicle is not capable of running a 1,600-watt inverter uh, with any consistency or regularity or usefulness at all Because that vehicle in of itself, the way that it's set up and configured right now, is not, in Steve's word, a lightsaber. This is not what you do with a 1,600-watt inverter. You do not clamp a 1,600-watt inverter to your battery. That is not how it works. It is too much power. It is asking too much from the system. And you will end up frying things. Okay? So... It just isn't going to happen. Let's give you the rest of the story and the answer to your question. It is indeed important to ground an inverter of that of that uh, level, uh, and you would ground it to the frame of your vehicle. That's that's that simple. It's a ground. Uh, it's a it's a ground for the the housing, and it's it's that's what you would do. It's that's it. There's no more to it than that. Done. Um, why does it work? In a battery backup system with a couple GC2 golf cart batteries or, you know, a bank, you could do it with a bank of deep cycle marine batteries or whatever because there's enough of a reserve in the batteries to run the inverter. And even if you did that, you're not going to run a furnace on a 1600 watt inverter, even out of the back of a big battery system in the back of your truck for any length of time. That big inverter back there is due for surges, not for, you're looking at, um, 1,100 continuous watts of draw, even with two big GC2 batteries and the vehicle running, you're going to run that down really, really fast. It's a, it's, it's again. There's certain things you can do with battery backup systems. This is beyond the the capability. So the number one thing you have here is you you do not have the energy capacity to run that inverter in the first place. For any meaningful length of time. And two, a battery-powered 1,600-watt inverter, unless you're building a battery bank the size of a room, is not something that you want to be running an 1,100-watt continuous draw with. Okay, You could run a coffee maker that pulls about that much for a few minutes, and it will drain the crap out of your batteries. Right? So not the right application. The other problem that you have, you do not... You do not, you do not clamp a 1600-watt inverter to a battery. You attach it with heavy-gauge copper tightly tightened down to the battery terminals and to the back of the inverter. You don't clamp it. It's not a loose connection. It's a tight, heavy-gauge copper connection because of how much power you're dealing with. You can cause lots of problems otherwise. 
So this is not something that's designed to be hooked up and then taken away and then hooked up and then taken away. It's designed to be permanently installed. And running it off a conventional vehicle without additional battery reserves isn't going to work. What you want to run your furnace with is a generator. And frankly, unless you have another use for this inverter, I would sell it or return it. Because it is not right for what you're trying to do. If you listen to all of Steve's shows, and if you go to Battery1234 and read his recommendations of all his inverters, basically an 800-watt inverter is the biggest inverter that you're going to temporarily clamp to a vehicle to do things like run a refrigerator for a period of time and run a TV set and things like that and run a, you know some lights and stuff like that. You're not going to run high-drawn devices, which even just the blower of a gas furnace is, with an inverter and batteries. It's not designed to do it. It doesn't work. And frankly, you're in danger of burning stuff out, shorting things out, melting wires, frying your inverter, doing damage to the electrical system of your vehicle, depending on how wrong you are about what you try to do. But... Just to be very, very clear here, since I'm telling you what you don't want to hear, Steve has never recommended hooking up anything above 800 watts to a vehicle in this temporary configuration. High draw inverters with high capacity and high voltage are designed to be permanently affixed and installed. Nothing else. And they need a significant reserve to operate from. Uh, even though I didn't send this one to Steve, I am going to send him just the audio of just this to listen to, to see if he has anything to add by email. And hopefully, you know, if he gets the time, he'll get back to me and I can append it before the show's over. Or if it's significant and the show's already up, I can add it to the show notes. So you can check for that if you want to see. But that's my answer. I know it's not the answer you're looking for. But that's the answer. Uh, let's take another call. Jack, my question is about 22 caliber ammo. I'm just wondering, are we ever going to see those happy days again where you could actually walk into a store and buy it, you know, as much as you wanted or even the box now and then? And I just thought I'd get your opinion. This is Dave in Tennessee. Thanks. And bye. I, I am seeing it showing up a little more and a little more and a little more, but it's still very, very highly priced, and it's still going off the shelf as quick as it shows up with ridiculous prices. Bulk Ammo, our sponsor right now, does have Remington Thunderbolts and boxes of 500 in stock. 80 bucks a box. I love my sponsor. I'm not giving them 80 bucks for a, a brick of freaking 22s. I'm not. Cheaper Than Dirt has some stuff in stock right now. Let me look at it real quick. I think it's Tula. Uh, Tull Ammo. Toll ammo is uh, is being made in Bosnia and Herzegovina. <laughs> you get 250 rounds. It's like you know plinking target stuff uh, for 37.79. It's a little better, not much, but at least it's there. Two weeks ago, well, that wasn't available. It wasn't even there. Um, so that's that's the start of it coming back. A lot of times, if you go into Walmart, you ask about like, oh, we don't have any. I'm like, do you really not have any? And they'll have a couple bricks put away. And if you, you're a little bit like, come on, man, you, you guys have none, right? And you've asked them, okay, well, what day do you get it in? And show up on that day, then they kind of have a little harder time lying to you about it or whatever. But uh, here's, here's what I'm being told. And, and take this for what it's worth because I do not have verified sources in this. The 
demand for ammunition, in spite of the fact that most of the stuff that you want to buy other than rimfire is back on the shelves, is through the roof. The manufacturers are selling 9mm and... 223 and 40 Smith and Wesson, some of it in big government contracts, some of it just to the general public, as fast as they can make it. Not so fast that they can't keep up with demand, but as fast as they can make it, they can turn it out the door. They can run their equipment at full speed, they can run their factories at full speed, and they can sell, 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 sell. 22s. In spite of the fact that merchants are selling the ammo for higher than ever, There's several steps in the ammunition trade before the ammo gets from, let's say, Remington or Winchester into your hot little hand. The additional money is being made in that chain and at the final point of sale. The manufacturers are not making that much more money selling rimfire ammunition today than they ever were. They are making more money selling centerfire ammunition because it's more profitable to begin with. So... While the, the manufacturers of ammunition say, we're working hand over fist and we're doing everything we can and we're working as hard as we can. And, yeah, they're doing it, but they're making 9 millimeter and 223 and 7.62. They're putting most of their manufacturing resources and all this tempo upkeep into centerfire. And since the rimfire business is a lower margin segment for them, They are just kind of, yeah, they're making it, but they're not putting any of that extra effort into it. Everybody freaked out when Sandy Hook happened and bought everything, mags, guns, center fire, rim fire, and people started saying to themselves, well, shit, I at least need to pick up a couple boxes of 22, and that was gone, and then they really freaked out. And now, since even at 80 bucks for 500 rounds, let's say per round, it's about as cheap as ammo gets, with a few exceptions... When it's available, people buy it immediately. And there's people that will buy it. They don't care if it's $100 a brick. They're buying it. And as long as that continues, and as long as the demand for centerfire continues, and as long as there's not a lot more money in rimfire for the maker, that's where they're going to go. Now, is this verified information? No, it's the best information I have. I do think it's slowly starting to come back around. But here's the, here's the reality. The day I walk into Walmart and I see Remington Thunderbolts Uh, or any decent, you know, yellow jackets or whatever, uh, at a brick price of like 30 bucks, 35 bucks a brick. I'm buying 10 if they'll let me. I'm not doing this again. And there's a lot of people that feel just like me. And because of that, we are exasperating our own problem. And, but not buying it won't make the problem go away either because somebody else is gonna do it. We're in a, we're in kind of a catch 22 with 22 rimfires. But, um, If I'm full of shit manufacturers, if there's anybody out there who works for Remington or Federal or Winchester or whatever that listens to this show, let me know, man. I'll give you an open floor. You tell us where the ammo is. I believe that you guys could be making more of it. I believe that we'll buy it from you. I believe that it's not as profitable for you. So you've simply made a strategic business decision to, during a high-volume production period, focus on higher-margin product. Um, I don't mind that. I understand that as a business person. Will any of you be honest about it? Or will any of you come out and say that person that gave you that information or the multiple sources that provided you with that information are wrong? Here's the real story. Where's it? Go If you are making rimfire ammunition as fast as you can, like some of you say you are, where is it? Because it can't go on this long if it's true. If you're really doing it, 
it's going somewhere else, and I'd like to know where it's going because it's not going to the store shelves. There's no way the demand is not that high. Something's up. Either you're not making it or you're making it. It's going somewhere else. I'd love to know the answer to either one of those. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's John from Illinois. We're uh, currently looking at buying a house, and it seems like a lot of these foreclosure houses have pools that have gone to hell and the liners are ripped or completely covered in algae. I don't want a pool. What I was wondering was, can I take the liner out of the pool, scrap the aluminum, and then use the liner to create a small pond in the backyard? Thanks. Love your show. Bye. The answer is you can, but maybe you shouldn't. It depends, is like a lot of things. And are you okay with the fact that it could fail on you and actually might be more likely to fail on you than a pond liner, even though it would seem to be that it wouldn't because people swim in pools and they get a lot more light on them than, than a, a pond liner would because the, you know, the water's clear. But there's, there's a lot more things at play here. Um, let's start out with how a liner of any kind is rated. Usually it's in mill or gauge. And you understand a game that some manufacturers play when they say gauge. If you have a 35-gauge liner, what you actually have is basically a 30-mil liner. Most pool liners are in the 25 to 30-mil range. Premium ones are around 30-mil. Conventional, you know, lower-end one, 25-mil. Uh, that's just typical. There's some that are a little heavier, some that are lighter, but that's typical of what you'll see in most above-ground pools. A lot of people that do above-ground pools don't do what we did. We bought the best liner we could get. A lot of people buy the cheapest liner we could get. they can get, and you might even be below 25 mils. A good DPM liner for a pond will be in the 45 mil range. It's a lot thicker and heavier. All right, um, Because ponds have things like a lot more potential to have stuff growing up underneath them. You don't kill everything underneath it. They have a lot more potential to have things come in from the side. There's no you know, aluminum side you know, around them. They're into the ground more where an above-ground pool sits on top of the ground. It's only vulnerable underneath. Yes, you swim in it, but nobody usually swims in, like, you know, shoes. You swim barefoot. You're, you're lighter. You don't have little critters crawling around in there. There's just a lot of things different. So... You're already at a disadvantage with your thickness, and then you're at a disadvantage with the purpose of the liner. Then, you, you know, if the liner is a 25-year life cycle, and you're looking at a liner that's 10 years old, then you got another issue. And some of these liners for pools are designed to be 15-year liners, uh, the lower-end liners. So now you've got that issue with UV breakdown and things like that. Plus, you're telling me that a lot of these pools you're looking at, they look like they weren't very well cared for. So the upshot, you could. It doesn't cost you nothing. But if you make a really beautiful pond and then it fails, then maybe that does cost you long term and maybe you'd be better off buying a DPM liner. What I would say, though, if you doubled it, you might still have a pretty big freaking liner if you have a typical 24-foot round pool. Um You might be able to fold that thing in half and make a pretty damn big pond out of it if you go with a long, oval-shaped, kidney-kind-of-shaped pond. Well, now if you got a 25-mil liner, you're looking at 50 mils of thickness, and you you know when you put weight on it and seal the ends, it might work. That, that kind of works there a little bit for you. 
Um, and then it doesn't cost you anything, so if it fails only in certain areas, you could come in and, and, and maybe seal a leak with bentonite or something like that, uh, or uncover it, and they make patch kits for pool liners. And if it was covered with dirt, it would actually become dramatically more stable in UV light. So if you buried it, you didn't just you know put it in the ground and let people see it, and you kind of have to, don't you? It doesn't look real good for a pond, does it? The blue pebble look to them or whatever. So a black liner is a lot less visually obstructive, especially if you can cover the edges of it, than something like a blue, purpley, pebbly, friendly-looking pool liner. So you can, but you're going to have to think, if you want to cover a, a lined pond, completely cover it with dirt, you have to do your construction of your pond a little differently, too. You have to come with a very shallow edge, very, very gentle slope down, where instead of a conventional small garden pond, you usually have a pretty steep edge because you only have so much room to get the center of the pond deep. So if you were going to do it, what I would advise you to do is double the liner, double it up. Number two, figure out how big you can make your pond with that liner. And go a little smaller than the maximum to give yourself some room to be wrong, because you probably will be. Number three, I would excavate the pond in a very shallow slope. Okay? Very, very shallow slope. I would get as deep as I can in the center, but I would take my slope very shallow. So it's a pretty big pond to make that work. I would get scrap carpet. Okay? So... Remnant, rug remnant, scrap remnant, call a local guy that lays carpet and say, hey, do you have leftover pieces of carpet I could get off you? And I would cover the whole bottom with carpet before I put my liner in. Better than sand, better than felt liners and free and cheap. I would carpet the bottom. I would lay my liner in and I would use something like a, a soil with a decent clay mixture in it that'll pack well. I would cover the entire liner with at least an inch of good packable clay-type soil. You might even mix a few bags of bentonite. In, and this is a, quite a bit of dirt. So it will help. It will help a lot if you have some decent clay content to the existing soil that you have there. Okay? If that's the case, then you're kind of in business with this. Um, though an orange clay doesn't look real well. So like a black clay would be ideal. And I would lay down about an inch, and I would pack it down to about a half inch. So it almost would line it without the liner at that point. And then I would fill your pond. And that might be more trouble than it's worth, but if I were going to do it and I wanted it to look natural and I wanted it to function well, that's the approach that I would take. And I probably wouldn't take any shortcuts on that. I probably wouldn't. And even with packing clay, it's a lot harder to make that gradual sloping edge than, than a lot of people realize. It's going to take, a, I mean, you're talking a very, very shallow edge a few degrees, and you can get a little steeper as you go in. But that lip has to just be, I mean, you're scraping a couple inches over a couple feet. And then you can slowly take it to a few more. You know, you're looking at a one inch per foot maximum slope on the first couple feet of your edge. So that the edge of your pond, you know, is, is a couple inches deep. That's it. And you got to go a little deeper than that because you're going to add your carpet And you're going to add an inch of top cover. So you've got to really plan that. You've got to say, where I want to be two inches deep, you know, if I'm going to add an inch of top cover, that's an inch. And it's about a half inch for the carpet and the liner underneath it. 
So, you know, I'm going to have to go about an inch and a half deeper where I want that. And you have to really design that well to cover a liner and make it look good and make it stable. And you want to get, you might be better off with two inches of cover. Seriously. Because uh, it'd be great if you could get some plants, some aquatic plants growing into that soil to stabilize it uh, almost as quickly as possible. Um, not just growing in pots and stuff. You want stuff growing in there. You don't want anything with aggressive tappers that'll puncture your liner, but you want things with shallow net roots, which most of your aquatics are. And if you can get that going on, you can do a fairly good job with this. By the time you're done with that all, though, you may have just been able to line the damn thing with bentonite and have a lot more freedom with your pond shape and size or purchase the proper EDPM liner. Best I can do for you. Let's take another call. It'll be the last one of the day. Jack, this is Greg from the Houston area in Texas, and I have a very brief question, and I was hoping that you might explain what a banana circle is. Uh, Jeff Watton mentions it a couple of times, but I've never heard a good explanation, so I look forward to your answer. Thanks for a great job. Bye. Well, if you take a permaculture design course, you're going to learn all about banana circles because it's a massive um, component with function stacking, and it teaches us a lot of lessons in design and pattern and designing from pattern to details and functionality and space and function and time stacking, all these complex things that you learn about in permaculture design in one system that it's not so much so that you can go make banana circles. It's so that you can understand all those functionalities and then emulate pieces, parts, or all of them in other systems. So keep that in mind as I explain what this is. Understand that, generally speaking, bananas are grown in plantations. And bananas are grown at about 12 to 15 foot spacing per plant. And they're grown in rows, straight rows, or staggered rows. But that's how they're grown. And what you end up with is about 12 feet of spacing so the machinery and people can get in between the rows, and so the plants can spread out and produce bananas. And that's entirely more space than is necessary. But even just planting closer, you start to get some problems and things like that. But what if I told you we could increase the yield per acre by a factor of 12 by changing the spatial relationship only? So before we even talk about the construction of a banana circle... If I plant bananas in a 12-foot circle and one banana every 12 feet, they will grow, and as long as they have enough moisture and nutrient, they will produce more bananas per tree than they will planted at 12-foot spacings. Just think about that in itself. So the spatial relationship change gives us a 12-fold increase, plus we get a productivity per plant increase. They actually produce more. They sucker more vigorously, and eventually a banana plant gets to a point where it's time it's done, and it's going to be replaced by another plant that's suckered next to it, and that will take over. That's about an 18-month to three-year cycle, depending on the banana, the variety, and the climate. All right, So now we get an increase in reproduction in addition to production. Now, how do we build this circle instead of just planting in a circle? What we do, and some people will differ with me, and I'll play with Jeff on this one a little bit, when they say in the tropics, hugel culture doesn't work very well. In a way, it's a type of hugel culture. A banana circle is basically a type of hugel culture, um, but not quite the way we think of it, because it's using organic matter, not just wood, and it's using whatever organic matter we can get. We dig a circle, a pit, 12 feet in diameter. All of the, like a pond, like a round pond, all of the dirt that comes out of the pit goes into a circular berm around the pit. So think of it like a bowl. So in the landscape, 
you got like this little ridge that comes up and it drops down into a deep hole on the other side. We plant our bananas in that bed, that circle, that berm. Bananas go in there. Before we do that, we get every bit of scrap organic matter we can get. Tree trimmings, food waste, manure, old banana plants, whatever we can get our hands on. And we fill the pit with organic matter. And then we plant the bananas into that circle. That provides a continuous nutrient feed out into the berm. It has to go in the berm because it's surrounded. Now, if we get clever, we create an opening for water to come into the circle. And we create an, an opening for water to exit the circle. And when we get a rain or when we irrigate through flooding, the water comes down the trench, goes into the circle, soaks the hell out of it, and when it can't take any more, flows to the next one, and so on and so on. So we interconnect them. So if we locate an irrigation source, natural or created irrigation source, at the highest point in our field, we can flood the field through, and every time it rains, nature does the same thing. Overflowing one banana circle to the next, to the next, to the next. So now I've got my nutrient held in place and not eroded. I've increased my production at least 12 times using the same space by just changing the spatial allocation. I've increased the reproductivity vigor of the plants. I've increased the individual productivity of the plants. And I've done that all with a circle and a bunch of organic matter that normally would be drug off somewhere, piled up in a pile, set aflame, and burned off into nothingness. But we're not done yet. Now, instead of having all these empty rows with vehicles driving down them to pick my bananas, I've got all these circles so I can drive a vehicle down and pick my bananas and throw them in the back of a vehicle or what have you, and it still works just fine. It actually still functions from a high harvest rate. I can do this on a large scale. It's not quite as efficient in how quickly I can pick because I've got to go around the circle versus just down the line, but the productivity increase of over 12-fold certainly makes up for any lack in individual bunch-picking speed. But now I've got all this edge to work with. So now I can plant things like taro, and papaya, and all other types of plants, and I don't have a monoculture anymore. I have a polyculture, and I have additional yields, and additional support species. So that's a banana circle. Well, what does that mean to you, dear listener, in Atlanta, Georgia, or Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, or Prescott, Arizona, or Dallas, Texas near me, or New Hampshire, or you know any place that bananas don't grow? Or you can get some hardy bananas to grow that will never produce a banana that are just for tropical look and feel. And maybe you can make some tamales or uh, tortas or something using the leaves. Or, you know, steam fish in it, which is a wonderful use of a banana leaf. Um, not much from the standpoint of making a banana circle. This will work with anything. Any, any tree or bush or shrub that likes moist environments, lots of organic matter, that grows relatively straight up and down, that handles your climate. So, could you make a banana circle with apples? Probably. Not quite ideally shaped, but smaller apples, semi-dwarf, highly pruned. You could make an apple circle. But what about an apple, plum, peach circle? Right? What about polyculturing? I've never actually seen anybody do it. I don't have the soil for it. I can't get the depth here to do it. But I might do it somewhere. I might do a hoogle circle and plant around it and inside of it. I don't know. We'll see. But it actually would be an interesting thing 
to see somebody, if you want to be a pioneer and you have the space and you have a little bit of understanding of this technology, to maybe do a series of them interconnected with water flows and emulate the tropical banana circle in a temperate, cool climate. It's not necessarily a great idea, and it's not necessarily a bad idea. It's something that the true answer is, we don't yet know if it really will work here. Because no one that I know of anyway has really emulated the pattern here. But it seems like it could. It seems like it could be done in a lot of ways. What a great way to do a Three Sisters garden if you wanted to do it with annuals. What if you did the exact same thing and instead of doing what the Indians did, which was making a mound and planting the, the corn in a circle on the outskirts of the mound and the beans in the corn and made mounds, what if you made Three Sisters circles? Might work. What if you did it from a standpoint of shrubs and bushes, and planted... Now, understand something else about a banana circle, where they're grown. Tropics. Think of the tropics. Put something... If you if you have a desk... Let's do an exercise right now. The, the great teaching exercise. Find something shaped like a circle. A dish, a bowl. I've got a little wooden bowl, a little hand-carved wooden bowl in front of me right now. And then pretend your right hand is the sun. Okay? Now, think about... Whatever's planted in that circle growing up high enough to shade out the things on the back or the left or the right side of it. And pretend your hand is the sun and start where the sun's coming up in the east and setting in the west and it's going straight over the top of the circle. And think about what that means. And if that sun comes straight over the top of that circle, what you're going to see is that entire circle is going to get a great deal of sunlight. Every day of the year that that sun is high overhead and comes straight over the top. Guess what happens in the tropics with the sun? It moves very subtly north to south in the sky. If you're right on the equator, it, it doesn't move much at all. But it stays very high. And one side isn't really shaded out by the other very much. They all get sun at different times of the day, but they're all going to get a lot of sun every day. Now, look at your circle. Push it out in front of you a little bit. So a little space between your body and your circle. Take your hand, hold it lower in the sky. This is the southern sky. Rise in the east and set in the west. And think about that. And the further south you are, if you know your sun's angle, move your hand the way it would move in the summer, the spring, the fall, and the winter. And what you'll see is in some climates like mine, in the summer, all sides of that circle are going to get a pretty good amount of sunlight. And in the winter, the back is going to get very little, especially the outside back of the berm. So now you've created a problem or a solution, depending on how you use it. The backside, the north-facing slope of your, of your circle, might be a good place for currants and gooseberries, but it sure as hell isn't a good place for grapes that need a lot of sun to produce and ripen. So now we've taken the pattern developed in the tropics, specifically developed to maximize density and production of one species when the sun is high overhead almost all year round, or actually all year round, very, very subtle changes in the angles of the sun in the tropics. And we've moved the pattern geographically outside of that situation. And if you're in the southern hemisphere, everything I said is in reverse, right, as far as where your sun is. 
So now you have to ask yourself, how do I take the pattern developed for one climate into another climate? And it's not just now that we're in a situation where it's colder. It gets colder here or there's less rain here. The solar aspect is dramatically different. So if we're going to make the circle work, we have to take the solar aspect into account as well. So if we try to plant the same species all the way around that all have the same solar requirements, which bananas all have the same solar, all bananas, and we take one that gets heavily shaded versus one that gets lots of sun, we're probably not going to have optimum results. But if we understand that and harness it, Now we can say, since this is more shaded, I'm going to put my more shade-tolerant species, my species that I'm a little south for, that like it's really happier a few degrees north of here, and I'm going to put it in my shady spot. And then I'm going to take my species that maybe is, I'm, I'm dancing with the devil on the other end. This species is really happy a little bit further south. I'm going to put that right on my south-facing point. I'm going to let those roots bake in the winter sun when everything's dormant. And I'm going to put my species that like sun, but don't like to get too hot on my eastern side. Because they're going to get morning sun. They're going to get sun when it's high in the sky. And as we come over to the other side, they're going to get shaded out in the western sun. And I'm going to take my species that can really ha handle the biggest brutal beating of heat. And I'll put them on the western side. That's how awesome a banana circle is. That's why it's such an important teaching tool. Even if you never build a circle ever in a landscape, the lessons I've just taught you on microclimates, function stacking, time stacking, polyculture, can be then taken and dissected and chopped up and reapplied over and over and over again in situations. Some people ask me, Jack, why can you look at any problem and quickly come up with not just a solution, but a solution that you can explain, and the person can go, oh, I understand that. That makes sense. Because of permaculture thinking. And I had permaculture thinking before I knew what permaculture was. This is how I've always analyzed things. That's why I love permaculture. It fits in with my line of thought. Problem, solution. Analysis, solve. That is, it's what we do. Pattern. I'm bored a lot of times by mainstream media. Because I'm like, seen this before. And my wife's like, what do you mean? It's a brand new show. I'm like, it's the same crap. This is the same shit. I'll name like four shows. I'll be like, well, in the 1970s they had this show. In the 1980s they had this show. In the 1990s they had this show. This show just ended in the early, mid-2000s. And this is the new version of this freaking show. It's the same crap. You got this guy that does this, this woman that does... And it's 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 been fine-tuned to our modern sensibilities or lack thereof, but it's the same repetitive crap. I go listen to somebody pitch a business idea, and I'm like... Yawn, it's the same crap, regurgitated, what's new, what's innovative, what is going to engage people at a higher level. And that's because I think with pattern, relationship, understanding. And, and if you really want, I don't care, see, and like the people that go, well, I don't want to know how to grow all this crap, 
right? Uh, Jeffrey Tucker, who I loved having on. He's a wonderful guy. When I talked to him the one time, he said he wants to do more and more with the preparedness aspect, but he goes, and he said the F word, right? I don't want an effing garden, right? I just don't want the, the hassles of that. This permaculture thinking lets you analyze a business and determine how to get around it. It will be permaculture-style thinking that lets us do permaethos, not permaculture-style thinking that lets us grow the stuff on the farm. That will get us around the myriad of roadblocks and obstacles created by government legislation designed to squash competition, we will have to use permaculture thinking to turn the problem into the solution. If I come into your business and you say, I'm having these problems, I'm going to look at first when you say, let's say it's a web-based business. I'm getting traffic, but I'm not getting conversions. What's your, what's your process funnel? What do you mean? Well, when I get to your site, what compels me to engage with you? Once I've engaged with you, what happens? When that happens, what does it what does it take me to next? Well, the water comes in the top of the field, goes through the first banana circle, filters through, infiltrates the nutrient, the overflow goes down. Huh? Got it? And if you don't, you're not getting it yet. This is why it's worth learning. Because it's the same thing. The edge of a forest, seven layers. Canopy, subcanopy, bushes, shrubs, trees, vines, climbers, rhizomes, all of these components that interact together to create the edge effect of that forest that where its maximum productivity will always be on its edges. The maximum productivity of a business will always be on its edges. The interface between the company and the customer is an edge. Okay? In a city... The maximum productivity of a city will always exist on its edges. Where urban and suburban meet will be the maximum productivity within a city. Look and see if it's not true. Now, it might be producing things you're not very fond of, but total productivity, that's where it'll be maximized. On the edge. The maximum productivity of a pond will be on its edge. You see a guy in a bass boat fishing for bass. He's not sitting in the middle of the lake. He's cruising weed lines and shorelines and structure lines. And when you do see a guy in a lake catching fish in the middle of the lake, there's a hump underneath you or something. Or there's a giant mass of plankton flowing through. They're creating a bait fish edge. They're creating a, a predator fish edge. And he's somehow detected that. Even if he doesn't know that that's what he's detected. He might have just saw fish on the radar, on the sonar, and said, okay, there's where the fish are. Boom, there they are. I'm catching them. Something created an edge. We fish for white bass in the lakes around here in the spring where they don't have a, a stream to go up to spawn. And we find gravel humps that they spawn in because that's the closest thing to what they can find. But we also find rocky points when the wind is blowing against the point. We fish that point. So we stay out and we cast into the point into the wind or with the wind. And we catch white bass there. Why? Because the wind has pushed the plankton up against the point, and that created an the point created an edge, first of all. Then the plankton accumulated on the edge. Since the plankton's accumulated on the edge, the small bait fish have come in to feed on the plankton, creating another edge, which brought the predator fish in. This is all permaculture thinking. As soon as you understand pattern and edge... You start to look at the world differently, and you start to dissect problems, not over decades or days, but in minutes. 
you start saying to yourself, where's the edge here? If I was consulting for businesses today, if I was back in that business, the first thing I would do is I'd walk into a business and say, where are your edges? And after they all looked at me like I was a flipping retard, I'd start saying, where are your interfaces? And programmers would understand that. And I would say, where are your financial interactions? And financial people, accountants and salespeople would understand that. And I would say, where are your customer touches? And the marketing department would understand that. And I'd say, these are your edges. These are your edges. Now let's, let's look at your edges because your edges are where all your productivity is. You have internal edges and external edges in a business. Hmm? I'm done. You take that one. Maybe I'll do a permaculture to business analysis on Tuesday. If you're interested, let me know. It will influence my decision for what to do on Tuesday's show next week. I will tell you in advance, there will be no show on probably, on, there'll be a show I think on Thursday next week. I'm not sure now, but there will be no show on Friday next week. Maybe no show Thursday next week. We have the Battery Bank Workshop going on. Stephen Harris is going to be here. A bunch of people are here. I'm just going to take a, a day off or two, depending on how it works out. If I have a Wednesday show that goes and runs Thursday, there'll be one. If not, because I know we lost a guest next week, actually trying to get Jeff Lawton on the air on Sunday, and that will give us a full show next week. But if you want me to analyze business consultancy and how I would as a consultant analyzing different businesses – Use edge factor approaches to optimizing a business on Tuesday. Let me know if nobody's interested in that. I don't know. We'll talk about hunting or guns or something. Whatever you guys want to hear, let me know in the comments today. And I hope today has opened your eyes to a new way to look at permaculture thinking. And understand this. You always get what you give. And a lot of people will take a permaculture design course. And all they'll learn how to do is a few techniques and a few thoughts and a drawing and a design. If you want to understand edge effect... Give to the edge, and it'll give back to you. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. Like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
revolution. 